The Audacity podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land we're recording on today, the Dharawal people, and pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present, and emerging. We also acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. The Audacity podcast will start in three, two, one, and launch. Yoo-hoo! Welcome back to part two of Women in the Music Industry. I am Kat Sleeman and this is the Audacity Podcast. Now, this episode will explore music ownership, the full story behind why Taylor Swift re-recorded her old albums, uh, we touch on the double standards that exist in the music industry, and also the difference between women sexualizing themselves and men sexualizing women. You're listening to... The Audacity Podcast. So before we get into the episode, there's someone in the media that I really need to call the fuck out. <laughs> and it's the English police commissioner who had the fucking audacity to victim blame Sarah Everard for her own murder. I can't find the words for how angry this makes me. I'm so fed up with this and I can't believe that it's happening in this day and age. But for context... Sarah Everard, a 33-year-old woman from South London, was murdered by police officer Wayne Cousins, who used his authority as law enforcement to falsely arrest her over a COVID breach before coercing her into a vehicle where he raped and murdered her. He was given a life sentence, but just days after, a chief police commissioner came out and said that women need to be more streetwise about when they can and can't be arrested. She should never have been arrested and submitted to that. He also said, perhaps women need to consider in terms of the legal process to just learn a little bit about that legal process. Wow. Wow, wow. I actually can't. This makes me want to burst into tears of frustration and anger and of every negative emotion I could have. It's the definition of victim blaming and it's so fucked up. I'm going to read some words written by Saliha from Pedestrian TV on the topic because I think that she just, she puts it best. Saliha also has an incredible podcast called Here's the Thing, though, that I highly recommend you check out. Uh, she touches on so many important topics, so I'll link that in the description as well. But in her article for Pedestrian, she says, He could have spoken about the systemic issues that led to this matter. He could have discussed the toxic boys club that allowed Cousins, who was named the rapist by his co-workers, to become what he is, unchecked. He could have discussed the ineptitude of internal investigations that failed to address three accusations of indecent exposure against Cousins, two of which happened eerily close to when he murdered Sarah. Alec could have spoken of the warning signs that were overlooked. He could have talked about the overhaul needed in the police system to address this kind of evil behaviour. And wishful thinking as it is, he could have discussed what the point of the police is at all, and if they have ever really existed to serve and protect the people. They haven't, but that's an article for another day. Unquote. Anyway, I'll leave it there. She's right at the end, by the way, about the police actually being law enforcers and not protectors of the people. Anyway, another topic for another time, Cat. <laughs> but yeah, it's a great article. I highly recommend reading it. Uh, Saliha delves into exactly why this statement was so problematic and summarizes my thoughts wonderfully. So I'll link it in the description. But all in all, I'm so sick of deflection and victim blaming. This is exactly why so many people don't trust law enforcement. 
I'm sorry. Try again. Okay, so leaving off from the last episode, while there are some highly successful women artists in the charts at the moment, I want us to take a moment to reflect on just how hard they actually need to fight to be respected as women in the industry. Now, I want to talk about Taylor Swift for a bit. Taylor Swift is someone who, much like the color pink, internalized misogyny really ruined for me for a while. I personally fed into the media's mean antagonizing narrative towards her at several points in my life, but I want to discuss not only how this is a clear example of the different narratives the patriarchy lays out for women in the media compared to men, but also I'd like to touch on music ownership rights and the dangerous amount of influence that men have over women and their reputations in the music industry. So my infatuation with this topic began when I found out about Taylor Swift re-recording her old albums. I remember glossing over it and not really thinking much into it, as I never really was a Taylor fan. Once again, probably due to internalized misogyny, since let's be real, she's got a fuck ton of bangers. But recently, I actually looked into it and what I found was not only juicy as fuck, but also kind of saddening for poor Taylor. And it honestly shifted my entire perspective on a lot of highly renowned people within the music industry. Now, obviously, a lot of what I'm about to discuss is very he said, she said, but at the end of the day, I really urge you to place yourself in Taylor's perspective and ask yourself how you'd feel. And also consider the very, very real history of women not being believed in not only the entertainment industry and the media, but also society at large, which only furthers the agenda of many, many, many rich white dudes involved in this shit show. Logging into system. So this tale begins with a dude called Scott Borchetta. So Taylor met Scott Borchetta in 2004, but she didn't start working for him till 2005 when he discovered her at an industry showcase in Nashville, Tennessee. So who the fuck is Scott Borchetta and why is he relevant? You're probably wondering. Uh, well, he's just another old white dude. <laughs> but he is also a record executive and also the founder and the CEO of Big Machine Records, who will come up a fair bit in this story. He's currently in his late 50s and he got into the industry through his dad, who worked for big record labels like RCA and Capital. So Scotty Boy actually began in the music industry as a musician, but the band he was in didn't really make it into the market, so he decided to just get into artist development with Universal Music. He then ended up leaving that job to work for another company called DreamWorks Nashville, and then left there in 2005 to start his own independent label, which would go on to be Big Machine Records. So I'm going to call him Scotty from Artist Development as an ode to Scotty from Marketing. Uh, but Scotty from Artist Development said that he wanted to start his own record label because he didn't like the way that major labels operated. And he thought that him and his business partner and co-worker at the time would do a way better job if they just started their own label. Which takes us to that industry showcase I was talking about in 2005 in Nashville where he met Taylor. So, when he first met Taylor, this was right as Big Machine was beginning to come into fruition. The idea was still very much wishy-washy, nothing set in stone, but Taylor caught his attention and her and her parents decided to agree to work with him. So, Taylor's dad, Scott Swift, ended up buying into, I think it was like 3% of Big Machine. Also, another thing to note, every dude and their dog in this story is fucking called Scott. <laughs> Classic. Maybe Scott is the new male equivalent of Karen. Who knows? Anyway, uh, so Taylor signed on for a 13-year deal with Big Machine, 
that would contractually tie her to the company till 2018. Which is kind of fucked up when you think about it because she was 15 when she signed that. Like, think of yourself at 15 and, like, signing away 13 years of your life to someone. I could not even imagine. Oh, she literally gave the dude his success as well, when you think about it. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But in the deal, she would get a cash advance from them, which is basically just an upfront payment, as long as they owned the rights to her first six albums. So basically they said to this 15-year-old girl, if you sign this 13-year contract, we'll give you a fuck ton of money upfront, as long as we can own the rights to all of your albums you make while you're signed to us. Now, record deals are super different for different companies, but it's not unusual, and if anything, it's probably quite normal and traditional for major labels to own their artist's music. So the reason why record labels want to own the artist's music is because they want to earn back the money that they invested into these artists. So if you're signed to a major label, like a huge one, they spend a lot of money to shape an artist's career. They fund the album production process, the photo shoots, the big marketing campaigns, the promos, the media interviews and publicity. They'll pay for all of that to help your album do well so that they can get a good return on their investment. So the better an artist does, the more money they make. So realistically, if the artist goes well, like as well as Taylor fucking Swift, they make the amount they paid back, but they also make a fuck ton more back. So when I refer to owning the artist's music, I mean owning their masters. So a master is basically the official original recording of a song, sound or performance. Uh, and it's like the source from which all of the later copies are made to be distributed on uh, digital platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, etc, etc. Uh, and it's also copied onto different albums and vinyls and um, movies, etc. So whoever owns that master owns all of the copies and it means that you have to get permission from that person to license the recording. So as an artist, whoever owns your masters is a pretty powerful person because they get to decide everything your music is used for without your permission. So if this person wants to use the song in a terrible campaign or film that completely misaligns with your values, you can't do anything about it. So long story short, whoever owns your masters is pretty fucking important. So Taylor went on to release six albums with Big Machine, the first of which was her self-titled album in 2006. And it went really, really well, despite a lot of people telling Scott Borchetta not to sign her because she was really young. But it ended up working in his favour. And I think that this was for a couple of reasons, not just the fact that she was quite young. Firstly, Taylor was bringing something very different to the industry, which was marketing country music to teenage girls. Her debut album peaked at number 5 on the US charts and it stayed there for 157 weeks. And fun fact, Taylor's music catalogue actually made up 80% of Big Machine's income. 80%. No one can sit here and tell me that this woman did not make Scott Borchetta's career. Anyway, so Taylor went on to make another five more albums with Big Machine and then 2018 rolled around and as the end of her contract was approaching, she had to decide whether she wanted to re-sign with them or find another label. And she ended up actually signing on with Republic Records, who were parented by Universal Music. So when Taylor's contract ended, of course Scotty from Artist Development tried to convince her to re-sign with Big Machine. I mean, naturally, the woman made up 80% of your income, so of course you're going to want her to hang around. But Taylor had been telling Big Machine for years that she wanted to own her own music. And in response to that, 
Scott Bohuschetto actually told her that she could earn back her masters by receiving the rights to them one by one for each new album that she put out with Big Machine. So basically they said that you can get your albums back if you re-sign to us and for every new album you make you can get the rights to an old one. Which would obviously take ages, would take a lot of work, and is also just manipulative as fuck. So Taylor said, catch your hose and signed with Republic Records, which I think is fair as fuck. Anyway, everything's fine and dandy for a while until Dear Scooter Braun comes around. Now, I know that this is about to be a little bit controversial because Scooter Braun's a pretty liked dude. Uh, He manages some super popular artists. Some of his artists I really, really like, but yeah, he manages some pretty big names like Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, Kanye, Demi Lovato. Um, And yeah, he's a highly liked dude within the industry. But I think that no matter how good at his job he is, Scooter Braun gets away with a fair bit of shit, and I kind of want to unpack it. Processing. So 2019 rolls around, and Scott Braun, aka Scooter Braun, acquires Big Machine Records from Scott Borchetta for $300 million. I told you that every dude in this story was going to be called Scott. You know, Scooter probably calls himself Scooter because every white cis dude in the industry is called Scott. So he needed an edge. And look, it worked. Anyway, for those who don't know who the fuck he is also, Scooter Braun is a very successful record executive, investor, and artist manager from New York City, who's basically built himself a multimedia empire. So Scooter's currently 39 and actually got his start in the entertainment industry by planning parties in college, which led him to planning parties for artists like Eminem and Ludacris and heaps of other people. So because his name was getting around a fair bit despite him being so young, at 19 he was actually offered a marketing position at a record label. And he stayed there for a little while before actually leaving to start his own venture for artist representation and marketing. So in those early days of him working on this venture, he discovered uh, 12-year-old Justin Bieber on YouTube. And he decided to make him a fucking star, as we all know. But unsurprisingly, a lot of people are actually known to not like Scooter Braun as well, particularly Ariana Grande fans. So Ariana is one of his clients, and they appear to have a decent working relationship in the early days, but then we found out that she fired him in early 2016 for a bit, and apparently she fired him over some personal relationships, and Scooter kind of went on in the media and bragged about having personal information over Ariana, but being such a good person for not wanting to tell people about it. And like, I don't know, I feel like that's literally blackmail, but okay, we'll just ignore that. (laughs) Anyway, not to mention he's also had a rep of doing other shit things, i.e. forcing Ariana to release Thank You Next, which was a very, very personal song to her. Um, Also signing Madison Beer and promising her a career and then dropping her out of nowhere. And then basically doing the same thing to Carly Rae Jepsen after milking the money made off Call Me Maybe. Oh, and he also managed uh, the British-Irish band The Wanted. And they had a reality show where Scooter actually pushed the image of rebellious party boys with bad reps. And he encouraged them to do controversial shit all the time without really thinking about the mental health consequences and the reputation consequences that it would have on the boys. When they were obviously going to receive constant negative backlash from the media. So that's all you really need to know about dear old Scooter Braun. Now moving back to the Taylor stuff, Scooter is old mate who acquired Big Machine from Scotty Borchetta. So in slang terms, 
Scooter bought Big Machine from Scotty from Artist Development. <laughs> Uh, and this was announced in June of 2019, and the public learnt that Scooter would now own the rights to the masters of Taylor's first six albums. So on this day that the public found out, Taylor released a huge statement on her personal Tumblr with a screenshot of an Instagram post uh, Justin Bieber had put up of him on a FaceTime call with Scooter Braun and Kanye, and the caption is, Taylor Swift, what's up? So in the screenshot of Justin's screenshot... This is fucking screenshotception. Anyway, Taylor has circled Scooter in it and is pointing to him with an arrow and next to it is written, This is Scooter Braun bullying me on social media when I was at my lowest point. He's about to own all the music I've ever made. Now, I'm going to read the statement and it is pretty long, but I think that it's really important that we hear out women's stories. So if you've already read it, then sure, skip ahead. But I hadn't seen it, so I thought that you guys might find it interesting like I did. For years, I asked, pleaded, for a chance to own my work. Instead, I was given an opportunity to sign back up to Big Machine Records and earn one album back at a time. One for every new one I turned in. I walked away because I knew once I signed that contract, Scott Borchetta would sell the label, thereby selling me and my future. I had to make the excruciating choice to leave behind my past. Music I wrote on my bedroom floor and videos I dreamed up and paid for from the money I earned playing in bars, then clubs, then arenas, then stadiums. Some fun facts about today's news. I learnt about Scooter Braun's purchase of my masters as it was announced to the world. All I could think about was the incessant manipulative bullying I've received at his hands for years. Like when Kim Kardashian orchestrated an illegally recorded snippet of a phone call to be leaked and then Scooter got two of his clients together to bully me online about it. See photo. Or when his client, Kanye West, organised a revenge porn music video which strips my body naked. Now Scooter has stripped me of my life's work, that I wasn't given an opportunity to buy. Essentially, my musical legacy is about to lie in the hands of someone who tried to dismantle it. This is my worst case scenario. This is what happens when you sign a deal at 15 to someone for whom the term loyalty is clearly just a contractual concept. And when that man says music has value... He means its value is beholden to men who had no part in creating it. When I left my masters in Scott's hands, I made peace with the fact that eventually he would sell them. Never in my worst nightmares did I imagine the buyer would be Scooter. Anytime Scott Borchetta has heard the word Scooter Braun escape my lips, it was either when I was crying or trying not to. He knew what he was doing. They both did. Controlling a woman who didn't want to be associated with them. In perpetuity. That means forever. Thankfully, I am now signed to a label that believes I should own anything I create. Thankfully, I left my past in Scott's hands and not my future. And hopefully, young artists or kids with musical dreams will read this and learn about how to better protect themselves in a negotiation. You deserve to own the art you make. I will always be proud of my past work. But for a healthier option, Lover will be out August 23. Sad and grossed out. Broken heart emoji. Taylor. Now, if you don't already know why Taylor had bad blood <coughs> with Kanye, I will quickly run you down. So Kanye and Twee Swizz got off to a bad start in 2009, where he interrupted her award speech to say that he thought Beyonce deserved the award and literally humiliated the fuck out of her in front of the whole world. Would he have done that to a dude? Probably not. Anyway, they seem to have patched things up over the years with her even going on to present him with an award. 
But then, in 2016, Kanye released the song Famous, which featured the lyrics, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Why? I made that bitch famous. Obvs, Taylor wasn't stoked about that one. I wouldn't be either if someone was calling me a bitch, sexualized me, and also had the audacity to say they'd made my career all in two lines after seeming to have made some sort of redemption for humiliating me in front of the world. If it couldn't get worse, then both Kanye and his wife Kimmy K said Taylor approved for Kanye to include the lyrics and even approved it over a phone call. Taylor said, yeah, we did have a conversation, but at no point during the conversation was I told what the lyrics were, the fact that I would be referred to as a bitch, nor did he ever play it for me. Anyway, later in July, Kimmy K released a video of Kanye and Taylor on the phone having this conversation, but nowhere in the video is Kanye heard mentioning the actual lyrics to the song, nor does he mention the music video in which he portrays a wax naked Taylor Swift, which, I agree with Taylor, is basically fucking revenge porn. Anyway, more of the footage of the call was later leaked and reiterates that Kanye did not inform her of the actual lyrics. So this whole time, Kim and Kanye were really shitting on Taylor and turning the media on her yet again when she was literally telling the truth. And this all makes me think of how easy it is for women to not be heard or believed in these industries. And it honestly really saddens me. The Audacity Podcast. So Scooter comes into this because Kanye was one of Scooter's clients and he was completely on Kanye's side in the matter. Which also, of course, means that Jay Beebs was, which we clearly saw from him posting that picture on Instagram captioned, Taylor, what's up? Okay, so after all that bullshit goes down, imagine, Taylor finds out that Scooter Braun owns all of her music. Now, after Taylor put that Tumblr post up, Big Machine, so Scott Bullshutter, So, Scotty from Artist Development uh, put up a statement basically accusing Taylor of being a liar. Uh, Men calling women liars. (laughs) What's new? (laughs) And he says that she did know that Braun was buying the label and basically said that things went down very different. I could go into that, but that was all proved to be wrong. So, this blew the fuck up in the media, leading to a divide between heaps of artists, with celebrities actually publicly taking sides. We had Rihanna, Miley Cyrus, Adele, and Camila Cabello supporting Taylor, and Halsey even went as far as writing a post. And I think it actually summarizes the artist's perspective pretty well, so I'll just read out some of the parts that I think were quite good. Taylor has surpassed all expectations of what any artist is capable of. She catapulted her stardom into the Milky Way, and it turns my guts that no matter how much power or success a woman has in this life, you're still susceptible to someone coming along and making you feel powerless out of spite. It speaks volumes to how far we've come in the music industry, the way writers are treated, how as an entertainer you are respected, but as a writer you're walked all over. Even when you are both in one single body. I am standing with her. But, of course, you're always going to have people publicly backing the other side. Otherwise, Scooter would be cancelled by now. Let's be real. So, the most notable among his supporters were his wife, (laughs) also Demi Lovato, Sia, who's problematic as fuck anyway, so that counts for nothing, Uh, and obviously the Babes, who actually posted a huge fuck-off paragraph on Instagram, which I'm now going to have to read out. Fucking hell, why does everyone want to post a paragraph these days? He said, hey Taylor, first of all, I would like to apologize for posting that hurtful Instagram post. At the time, I thought it was funny, but looking back, it was distasteful and insensitive. 
I have to be honest though, it was my caption and post that I screenshotted of Scooter and Kanye that said Taylor Swift, what's up? He didn't have anything to do with it, and it wasn't even part of the conversation. In all actuality, he was the person who told me not to joke like that. Scooter has had your back since the day you graciously let me open up for you. As the years have passed, we haven't crossed paths and gotten to communicate our differences, hurts, or frustrations. So for you to take it to social media and get people to hate on Scooter isn't fair. What were you trying to accomplish by posting that blog? Seems to me like it was to get sympathy. You also knew that in posting that, your fans would go and bully Scooter. Anyway, one thing I know is both Scooter and I love you. I feel the only way to resolve conflict is through communication. So banter back and forth online, I don't believe solves anything. I'm sure Scooter and I would love to talk to you and resolve any conflict, pain or any feelings that need to be addressed. Neither Scooter or I have anything negative to say about you. We truly want the best for you. I usually don't rebuttal things like this, but when you try and deface someone I love's character, that's crossing a line. Processing. Okay, so I definitely see both sides of this feud, but I want to unpack this because I don't know about anyone else, but I kind of interpreted this as pretty problematic and gaslighty as fuck. Firstly, in response to Justin saying, you don't have to take it to social media. Justin, you literally posted on social media hating on Taylor first, but okay, anyway. Secondly, Justin saying, why would you post that blog? Seemed to me like you were trying to get sympathy, is literally a textbook example of gaslighting. And it's an example of the standard shit that happens to women in society all the time particularly women in abusive situations. When they finally have the courage to speak up, they're gaslit into thinking that they're selfish and attention-seeking for doing it. And it's clearly even perpetuated by some of the world's biggest celebrities. Thirdly, Justin's saying that Taylor knew in posting that blog that it would cause her fans to hate on Scooter. Double fucking standards! Like, did Justin not think of the hate that Taylor would cut from his... Kanye's and Scooter's fanbase when he posted the photo saying Taylor Swift what's up like he could have posted that photo saying nothing to do with Taylor and she probably would have gotten the point but no he directly added her so I don't know it just seems like JB can't take what is being served hello post-production cat here uh, I actually meant to say JB can't take what he serves but at this point the sleep deprivation really is getting to me uh, if you can't already tell from me beginning to mumble my words. So apologies for that as well. Anyway, back to it. <laughs> but yeah, this really disappointed me because I really like JB's music and this is just icky behaviour and I'm not really about it. But lastly, I also just want to point out the tone of the message, particularly at the end, um, which you would hope would round up kind of nicely. But if anything, I feel like it's more threatening than anything. Like... Ending it with when you try and deface someone I love's character that's crossing a line. Like, how in the world does that sound welcoming or compromising? Or like, you're willing to come and have a conversation about feelings. I don't know. Kind of off him for that, but back to it. This feud got ramped up again in November of 2019 when Taylor publicly accused Scooter and Scott Borchetta of not letting her perform her old music at the American Music Awards. So, Taylor was set to be presented with the... <coughs> Sorry, I needed to burp. So, Taylor was set to be presented with the award for Artist of the Decade during the show, and she wanted to perform a medley of all of her old music, and apparently they said that she couldn't use any of her old music for the performance or for the documentary on Netflix that she had coming up called Miss Americana. 
So, Scooter and Scott supposedly told Taylor that she could get permission to perform the medley and use her music in the Netflix doco, only as long as she agreed not to record her first six albums again, and agreed to stop talking about them in the media, because this was the point where she had just announced that she was going to re-record. So, of course, once again, Big Machine denied it all and said that Taylor owed the money, which is just fucking deflecting. But in response, Taylor's team fucked them up by hiring an auditor who actually determined that Big Machine owned her $7.9 million in unpaid royalties. Hello again. As I keep editing, I keep finding more mistakes. Uh, I meant owed, not owned. Fuck, I need sleep. <laughs> And they also released the email from Big Machine literally saying that they won't agree to issue licenses for her to use her own music. So, yeah, that's why I don't really believe anything that Big Machine says, because they're full of shit. Now, Scooter then decided to sell all of Taylor's music for $300 million to an investment fund called Shamrock Holdings in November 2020, of course, without telling Taylor. And this deal allowed Scooter to continue profiting off Taylor's music for many, many more years. And when this happened, it turned out that Taylor's team were actually trying to negotiate buying back Taylor's music, but classic, of course, he just went and sold it to someone else. But I think even worse than this, Scooter refused to give Taylor her masters back unless she signed a very, very tight non-disclosure agreement, or NDA, that would prevent her from ever saying a negative thing about him again. Which... Makes you wonder how many of Scooter's current artists or other people in this industry are under a similar agreement. Hmm. So, at this point in time, I believe Taylor has re-recorded her old albums, or at least the first couple, and she's re-released Fearless, Taylor's version, and will be re-releasing Red, Taylor's version on November 19th. So, that is the end of the Taylor Swift vs. Scotty Army saga. Uh, and it's a pretty fucking hectic situation, but I hope you learnt something new from it. I found it really, really interesting. Um, but I guess the reason I wanted to bring this up is because it really does urge the conversation about whether, um, new deals should be forming surrounding artists owning their music. And we are slowly seeing a bunch of new types of contracts coming out that might allow artists to have more say in what their work's being used for, or other labels might give artists the larger cut of royalties, or... Some others uh, strike a deal where the rights to the masters revert back to the artist after a certain amount of time. So it is slowly changing, but it is hard because it's important to balance the right of artists with the rights of the people that give them their platform. Uh, and sometimes that balance is very hard to achieve, and most of the time it's not achieved. Hence why we're seeing a rise in independent artists who aren't under a record label. The Audacity Podcast. Now, all of this had me thinking so much about the gender standards that exist within the music industry. Like, would this happen to a male artist? Not to mention the whole gender double standards around media commentary of musicians. Like, the first example that pops to mind is the way everyone obviously treated Britney horribly compared to Justin Timberlake in their breakup, despite him being a pretty big cock about her in the media. Now, Britney as feminist discourse is a whole fucking can of worms that I could open, but I'm not going to. I think the main thing that's relevant to this conversation, and I think makes enough of a point, is the fact that Britney was held under a conservatorship because she wasn't deemed mentally well enough to be in control of her own assets and decisions, yet was still made to work and attend public events. And not to mention the press slammed the fuck out of her, of course. Then, on the other hand, you have Kanye West, 
who is known to have severe mental health problems, was hospitalised and held involuntarily after suffering a mental breakdown and apparent temporary psychosis in 2016, yet somehow later went on to try and run for president. So, while Britney is unable to spend her own money without permission, Kanye's running for president. So a man has a mental breakdown, he runs for president, a woman has a mental breakdown, and she's stripped of her basic human right. Okay, cool, got it. <laughs> I'm making this point because I genuinely don't think anyone would ever place Kanye in a conservatorship, nor do I think that they should. Um, but I also guess I need to recognise intersectionality in this situation, which I talked about in episode one. As Kanye, as a person of colour, still inherently experiences the world in a different way to Britney, who is a white woman. So they both have their oppressions and adversities, and they're still both disadvantaged in different ways. But the point is that no one really should be under a conservatorship, especially if they're still deemed fit enough to work or fucking run for president. <laughs> so after reading these absolute horror stories about record labels, I wanted to get some more insight from an artist's perspective, and so I asked Hannah from Wigs and also Nancy Shipper about what they thought of contracts, record labels, and just the whole notion of music ownership. I think it's hard for me to make an insightful comment on that because I don't have a label, yeah. but what I will say is that I think it's important that conversations are had and questions are asked um, because we don't know what everyone else's experience is. For example, we won't know that men are getting paid more for us for the same gigs, for the same audience, if we don't have those conversations. And I think that is probably the main thing that I would like to see continue to change in the industry is just having conversations and honest chats about things that are hard and I guess a bit controversial and raise a few eyebrows because they're important, they need to be had. Yeah, again, I'll just say I we're not like with a label, we don't have these like powerful figures, um, male figures over us. So I guess I can't speak on personal experiences. But yeah, that is definitely something I'm just mindful of. Like, I think, especially with Zoe and I being so, like we make all our music videos, um, where we direct them and then we get a team to help us obviously film it. We can't film it ourselves. Um, and like all the graphic design, like all the artworks is everything we've done. And I think it is interesting just hearing stories from labels because it's like, you know, they, tell you a lot what to do and I understand they have a lot of money but it's like I'm like want to make sure that we still can have that power that we have now to own our own careers and you know still be able to direct our music videos and stuff like I think um our body of work kind of shows that we are capable with like the limited funds we have now so yeah just being like aware that there are maybe some higher-ups that might not trust us because women or maybe it's because we don't have much experience but yeah I also think like in a way we do not that we like are highly sexualized but we obviously like know that we are women and I guess we do have sex appeal so we're trying to use that to our advantage by not exploiting ourselves like or our bodies but like just being like if we present a certain way, we could get more of an audience and thus we could get more listens and more people coming to our shows, etc. 
Now, this is a great time to bring up the notion of women owning their sex appeal because time after time do we see women in the media being slut-shamed for sometimes owning their sexuality but at other times for just fucking breathing. (laughs) And for some reason, people have the audacity to comment on their agendas and their intentions and just call them moneymakers when, like, we're constantly seeing men profit off women's bodies. But, yeah, you constantly hear people say, they want people to buy their music, they want men to find them sexy. Let women be. A woman feeling confident in her skin correlates in no way to her sex life, and even if it did, which it doesn't, her sex life is not your business. Just like your sex life is no one else's business. Why is it that society thinks it's cool when a guy has heaps of sexy chicks in his music video hanging off him and makes millions off it, yet when a woman profits off her own sexuality, people just slut shame her? Well, sometimes they don't even need to do anything sexual. Just existing as a female, especially if any amount of skin is showing, usually means you're going to be sexualized. And that's one of the reasons why so many women are rejecting mainstream beauty standards, because they're sick of being sexualized. But I also really want you to note my wording. Women's bodies aren't inherently sexual. They're sexualized. A nipple isn't inherently sexual sitting there. It's usually sexualized. Now, I constantly hear the question, why do women sexualize themselves so much if they don't want men to sexualize them? And I will try and keep it simple. Sometimes it's empowering to feel sexy. I'm sure many of you can agree. Much like when a man flexes his muscles, he feels strong or masculine. A woman may also want to feel strong or beautiful or sexy or fit, but that is for her own sake. How we express our feelings and identity is through our clothing or how we look. She's not dressing like that so unwanted eyes are all over her and objectify her or harass her or sexually assault her. When someone cooks their own meal and they're proud of it, however delicious it might be, you don't go up and assume that it's for you. Similarly, women don't exist solely for men to stare at. But as I will go on to explain, they may choose to and that is okay also. So a woman may upload pictures for the sake of getting compliments. Vanity, if you wish. But so what? So some women want to be complimented on their appearance in a society that values women on their appearance. So some women are just as sexually active as men. That's also fine. At the end of the day, the point is it's none of your fucking business. It's her business and hers only. Now, I say that in the context of when a woman is taking control of her sexuality and maybe presenting herself in a traditionally sexual way, but like I said, sometimes it doesn't even take that for women to be sexualized or slut-shamed. It takes for them to just be there, breathing, and someone will call her a slut. Hannah from Wigs actually made a really good point to do with this, uh, about how people always talk about how much cleavage a woman is showing in her music video, but... I mean, we would never hear a soul complain about a topless male artist. So the next time you see a woman looking confident in her skin, instead of shaming her, commend her. She's having fun. So these fun facts are getting more and more entertaining as I keep going. Not because of the facts, but because the facts are leading to even weirder facts. When I say this, I mean... I'll be looking for a fun fact, I'll tell someone about it, and they'll have an even better and weirder and niche fact. <laughs> but this one, this one's really niche. Like, so specific and niche that I, yeah, I have no words, really. It's just strange. 
Okay, you know what? This fun fact shit is really hard. Is it? It's a lot harder than people would think. You'd think that you just look on the internet and you find a fucking fun fact. But it's like it's like Netflix syndrome. There's just too much. And I don't I know have what one, one, but let me finish chewing my Jolly Rancher. Okay. In the meantime, I'll just do ASMR. Are we ready? Yeah. Okay, go. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you were going to give a fun fact. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the state of Indiana, it is illegal for you to wash a donkey in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Serialist one can, can I fact check that right now? Girl, pull it up. I'm just gonna look up donkeys and Indiana. Donkey legislation, Indiana. Okay, donkey. Actually, donkey no. legislation, Indiana. Hmm. Okay, now look up. Bathtub. It- okay, yeah. Crazy bathtub laws. Um, I'm with it. Uh, it. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> in Oklahoma, it is illegal to have a sleeping donkey in your bathtub after 7 p.m. Okay, that's a lot to unpack. Okay, that's Oklahoma. We're talking about Indiana. Okay, but even then, there's a lot Oklahoma, to unpack. Oklahoma, where the wind <laughs> Why does the donkey have to be sleeping for it to not be able to be in the bathtub after 7 p.m.? And why after 7 p.m.? And why a bathtub? There's just so many questions. I have. I feel like I have the answer. Why? It's because back in the olden days, (laughs) like when things, when crazy things happened, they found it relevant to make laws because (laughs) that are towards these absurd things because they were big deals back then. So at the point of recording the next part. Summer had hit her energy drink come down, as you can probably tell from her lack of enthusiasm towards my fun facts. Okay, and now for this fun fact, I'm just going to fucking go through and list a bunch and you can tell me if you think they're interesting, Summer. Okay. For a short time, the planet Uranus was named George. (laughs) (laughs) No, it wasn't. Okay, ready? Another fun fact. Yeah. Movies have to clarify that they're fiction because of a 1930s lawsuit that traces back to none other than Rasputin. Well. Rasputin up to no good, as per fucking usual. Truly. Have you seen his dick? It's in a jar. No. Do you want to see it? Yes. I give you Rasputin's penis. Oh my god. Wait, zoom in. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to know why? Yep. Wait <laughs> on me. The Rasputin penis legend has grown, f- grown far beyond the jar it is pickled in. After being separated from his body, it was venerated as a fertility tal- talisman cured impotence and used in secret rituals but is this (laughs) 
But is this pickled dick really the meat? <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Shit. All right. But but is this pickled dick really the mystical manhood of Russia's mad monk? Wow, a lot. So Rasputin, the Russian mad monk who served the Romanov family and indulged in legendary debauchery, was rumored to be pretty stellar in bed. So much so, in fact, that one woman claimed to have had such an intense orgasm that she fainted. Summer. Wait, sign me up. <laughs> Stand clear. Now, we are about to wrap up part two. If you're not following us on Instagram, you know the drill. You can find us on Instagram at theaudacityorg, where you can now submit stories, questions, and topic requests via the link in the bio. I'd also like to thank everyone that provided sound excerpts for this episode, and also my dear friend Summer, who kept me company. So I'd also like to give a huge thank you to Nancy Shipper and Hannah from Wigs for contributing in this episode. You guys are the bomb. You know that I think that already because I rambled on about it for like five minutes in the last episode. But yeah, you guys are the best. Thank you again. I'll link all of the girls' socials in the description, of course. I'm Kat Sleeman and this has been the Audacity Podcast. Until next time, fuck the patriarchy, sex not war. Remember to keep your minds open and stay brilliant. Shutting down.